0: No guitar is
1: safe. Well, hello and welcome. It's No Guitar Is Safe, episode 36. How are you doing, pickers, poppers, pluckers? What are these? Strummers? Slappers? All y'all. Thanks for listening. Hope the guitar's been treating you well. My name is still Jude Gold, and today we are going to get in the copter and cruise over to Swinghouse Studios just east of Central L.A., kind of like in the uh, Glendale area. Amazing facility, my gosh! It's run by Phil Jargui, and uh, he is just a cool cat, making things happen on the scene. Giant rooms, medium-sized rooms, smaller rooms, whatever you need. You could be a baby band, or you could be Aerosmith and the Chili Peppers. Two of his clients in the past doesn't matter who you are, it's a great place, it's a community, it's your home turf, and I thank Phil so much for getting us a room at Swing House where I could do today's interview with the amazing, I'm going to use the B word, the brilliant Mike Keneally. Yeah, I don't usually throw around the B word lightly, but gosh, with Mike Well, first of all, calling Mike a guitar player? That's kind of like calling Johann Sebastian Bach a harpsichordist. So much more to the story. I might even use the G word on Mike. Genius. Guy's kind of a genius. He does stuff I don't comprehend. Like remember stuff. Like, how does he have such a photographic memory for music? It's kind of surreal. How does he play two totally independent things at the same time, like sing one part and play the other? It's crazy. Right now, I'll let you know where you're listening to uh, his new album, Scambot Two. Follow-up to the original Scambot. Scambot Two also comes with like a bonus album, like 12 additional tracks. Just great stuff. Every one of them, man. They're not throwaway tracks either. They're all brilliant pieces of music. The guy is so prolific, and every song is so different. And I recommend you get the hard copy if you can—the cool CD pack with the two discs and the uh, and the lyric sheet and all that. At least I assume it has two discs. But gosh, I've seen the PDF of the lyric sheet, and it's so cool because it's kind of a concept album. It's like a it's like a rock opera, a Prague opera, as I like to say. Now, in the world of Prague, Mike Keneally is very, very well known and he's known as a solo artist. But he's also known as kind of like prog rock's secret weapon. He's the secret weapon of Joe Satriani. That's right, he tours with Joe Satriani as his utility guitarist and keyboardist. That's the thing about Mike. He's a guitarist, but he's also a spectacular keyboardist which earned him a legendary gig playing with his hero, Frank Zappa, when I think he was 25. Now, this is an amazing, stunning story, because very few people get to play with their heroes the way that Mike got to be in a band with his hero since he was nine years old. Zappa was such a huge influence on Keneally's life, and it's a great story. How he got to be in Zappa's band. And yes, Satriani, similar role in Satch's band, obviously years later. Steve Vai's band. And also, Keneally plays with Brendan Small. Brendan, of course, has the really cool show Metalocalypse. It ran for years, cartoon animated series with a sort of fictional metal band that they would actually make into real life it's called Death Clock of course if you know your stuff Death Clock, man they performed that live I saw a Death Clock show once in front of thousands of people it was mind boggling and there's Mike Keneally there up there with Brendan rocking out it's just kind of amazing how Mike can fit into all these different situations but Mike is really primarily a composer that's his muse and he's got an amazing story I hope you like it of course, I want to thank Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com, which, by the way, we are entering a 50th year of publication starting in 2017. It's going to be a big year. Everyone's excited about that. And um, we're going to cruise over to Swing House momentarily. I just want to remind you that Mike Keneally, as I mentioned last week on the uh, Dean Brown episode, actually, I think it was two weeks ago, On the Dean Brown episode, I listed some tour dates, and uh, Mike's still in the middle of this great tour. Go out there and catch up with Mike. Meet him in person. Thursday, the uh, 27th of October, he's in Vienna, Virginia. Then the next night, he's in uh, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. And then the next night, Saturday night, I believe it is, Dunella, New Jersey, Richmond, Virginia, on the 1st of November. A lot of other dates at Keneally.com. That's K-E-N-E-A-L-L-Y.com check out some tour dates and I gotta say I'm proud to have known Mike for a few years now I mean I have interviewed him many years ago over the phone oh I should also say that I got to play a big project with him at the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard with Brendan Small it was Brendan Small's Galacticon album and Brendan performed the whole thing start to back and it has four guitar parts in every song so there were four guitar players it was Brendan of course Keneally the great Rick Musalem and myself. And we did that shit from start to back. It was amazing. Four singers. It was truly a spectacle. So I got to know Mike from that, but this is the first time I really got to sit down with Camille and really go on a journey. And what a journey it was. I think you're going to like it, and you're definitely going to be struck by how selflessly dedicated to music, and to composition, and to discovery this guy is. So I really hope you enjoy it. We're going to head over to Swinghouse Studio, where tonight there's a room waiting for us. They were so cool. Everything was all set up. Chairs, two amps all plugged in, mic stands. I think I'm plugged into a Fender Deluxe Reverb, and I'm playing a Strat, and... And Mike is playing his faithful green Strat with the uh, with the white single coil SAEMG pickups in it. And he's got some cool pedals that he's going to plug in. All right, let's rev up the copter and head over to Swinghouse and plug in with Mike Keneally. the time is safe. A pedal for that a second ago <laughs> now you're using a volume knob it's a different kind of swell you know <laughs> yeah, i know what is this pedal you know there's a table between you and me and your pedal board and i can't see what that is that's the philosopher king
2: of pigtronics it's a it's a it's ostensibly a compressor, but it, it has a bunch of other stuff going on. Um, it's a pretty crazy pedal. It's really cool. You know, you do those swelling things. There's also you can add additional grit from the compressor. And it's a dynamic swell too, because if it's already swelled up, then the next note is it has a full attack in. And then you can crank the sustain on it.
1: pedal mm-hmm. gotta buy one now yeah. thank you very much
2: yeah on we... <laughs> well, you know? it here's the full-on compression it doesn't sound like something that's overly compressed you know it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's
1: pretty darn cool so mike Keneally. yeah jesus brother
2: how are you doing all right sorry had a water
1: bottle in my face <laughs> i'm doing all right man it's uh good yeah it's been a while since uh i mean i don't know if the last time i saw you was at the roxy with uh brendan small or not when we played a what, um, galacticon
2: that's, that can't 1. be the last
1: time we've seen each other. I know I've seen you like we maybe at the like Big ba- Potato when b- you're playing the comedy night with Brendan or right, stuff like right. that. Yeah, but it, it, yeah, it's yeah. been a
2: while since we hung at length. That's true. This yeah. is very true. Yeah. But
1: so anyway, so you're like doing so much crazy stuff. Great to have you here. It's Thank kind you. of late on a Thursday night, <laughs> second or third day of fall. You were something. I love it, the fall. Me too. It's yeah. like you can really, yeah, everything, even in LA, folks. Yeah, you can feel it. You can feel the change. Now, you just came from Pigtronics, which are these are obviously some cool Pigtronics pedals you're running through right now. Yeah, what were you doing over there? Just, uh, uh,
2: shooting a, a video for them. They they uh, they they hooked me up with the uh, Infinity Looper, uh, and I've I've really never gotten uh, very deeply into looping technology at all. I'm really a, a you know a child when it comes to that stuff. So uh, I got this looper and had. You know, a, a limited amount of time to, to come to grips with it. It's insanely uh, uh, limitless in terms of what it can accomplish. There's also this uh, delay they have uh, called the uh, oh, it's right over there, the EchoTron Two Ultra Pro, and that's an insane delay. It's it's like. You could just have that and and get so many interesting effects that, that go beyond the realm of, of mere delay. It's 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 like a it's basically a synthesizer and eight eight or nine pedals in one. It's crazy. Um, so I just like I wrote a, a piece of music. Uh, to sort of uh, <laughs> accompany me on my <laughs> journey uh, at the, uh, the beginning of my adventure with with these pedals and with trying to come to grips with with looping and stuff and figuring out figuring out what to step on when, you know, oh, for yeah. for a, a, for a guy who's, you know, all my uh, my ad- adventurousness. Uh, it, it tends to be with the the actual music itself and when, when it comes to gear i tend to find things that i like and that work for me and then just hang there forever until they crumble in my hands you know i know so, mr iphone 5 <laughs> I, I tell yeah, you exactly i, I haven't I, I find no compelling reason to buy a new phone just because it's on the market you know
1: yeah my iphone 6 was a year old it crumbled in my hands did it really Basically, yeah, well, they said it was irreparable, probably because I dropped it 25 times.
2: That's a, Well, <laughs> that doesn't help, but it is a good business model that they've got going on over there, yeah, that's and for it's, sure.
1: it's just like you're there for three hours or something, and you're like, okay, just give me a new phone. It's like, okay,
2: <laughs> just got to get
1: back. You can't function with that. <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's pretty unbelievable. So, but... Yes, it's but
2: anyway, yeah. So, I, so I, I wrote a piece of music uh, for for this Pigtronics video, and I uh, I got three good takes. Uh, you know, the thing about working with with the effects is, if you're being kind of experimental, is that you you never 100 percent know what's coming around the corner. So each one of these uh, is partly composed, partly improvised. Videos ended up in a completely different place. You know, so. Uh, I don't know which one they're going to go with. I know the third one. I was we were all really happy with. So, so I imagine fun.
1: like some people, the old expression "falling off a log" is really easy to do. Like it was the easy, even easier for you to like write an amazing piece of music or very involved. Like, you're well, writing I, all the time. I do not know how you do it? Well, it's,
2: uh, thank you first of all. You know, <laughs> um, well, yeah. I just I don't know. I really really like music, and I'm I'm always. I'm always after something new that I like. Like, I, if 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 there's if there's some band around that that is is really cool, I want to know about it. And if if you know you know even if it's yeah, a, an album that's 50 years old, if I've never heard it, I, I, I want to know about it. So I'm I'm always like on the on the march trying to trying to find some some cool music, and often I have to write it in order to to hear it. You know, it's it's like that's always my. My kind of goal when i 'm writing is to try to write something that i 've never heard before much much less played um, mm-hmm. you know and that's it, it seems like that should be obvious if you 're writing a song you don 't you, you don 't want it to be something you 've heard before but i 'm always like i 'm trying to uh, just like stretch things in different directions and and that includes my fingers I, it, like i 'll often if I figure I've never put my fingers in this position before, therefore obviously I've never heard myself play this before. Uh, so mm-hmm. if I find some configuration of fingers that I've never considered, and it ends up sounding good to me, then that can easily lead to a song. So it's it's sometimes it's just like little tricks to find to generate things that I've never heard, and you then and then you, and, and then when you have a starting point, then you just sort of like push it along down the road until it turns into a song.
1: Do you ever do anything really crazy with the guitar? altered tunings or prepared capos or anything which I, you really get out there
2: I love I love alternate tunings and there's a, there uh, there's a bunch of them on on Boyle at Dustback which is from you know 22 years ago so I've been I'm I've I like yeah. that that Method of you know pulling the rug out from under yourself because you're when you pick up a guitar and you play a c major configuration you think you know what you 're going to hear, but that doesn 't work if you 're in some peculiar tuning, but I really you know like a song like This is a, the, the desired effect from uh, Boil That Dust Beck, and it's, a, it's basically like a, a what is it, D11 chord. I guess it's a C major up top. Mm-hmm. Strats take a little and, while. And, and open. Yeah. Five on the bottom.
1: Tuning real quick.
2: So uh, I'll look for a tuning that just when I s- strum the guitar by itself gives me something pleasing you know and then at that point it's like okay all the old tricks uh, there's a c major that don't work <laughs> you know that's well i mean you, you, that's the fun part if you play standard chord shapes in an alternate tuning you never know what you're gonna get <laughs> that sounds like you know like three guitars playing at once so that's kind of cool but with that i got this like some of those would be like at that, at that point if I, I am like okay I, I like the way this sounds like, I remember when I was writing it I was like that's a cool riff that I wouldn't be able to play if it wasn't for that tuning and then I, I remember on the B section I wanted oh what if I have like a bass line and a melody at the same time so easy bass line when you've got a drop D is just And then what kind of melody can I play on top of that bass line?
1: Um, I don't know if it has an Irish sound or the fact that you have the the green scrunchie at the nut and the green paint on the guitar. Just the whole thing sounds there like a four a, leaf clover a bit of uh, yeah,
2: Faith and Bigora, Aaron Gobra going on here. Yeah. 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 So the alternate tuning thing I've, I've been digging for a while. Uh, you mentioned uh, so, so the prepared guitar. I haven't uh, gotten into that. I'm, it's yeah. like. The people who do that are so serious about it and so you know so adept at it that I always feel like if I come anywhere near my guitar with a screwdriver, a <laughs> screwdriver, I feel like a pretender. You know, I feel yeah, like yeah. a dilettante.
1: It's one of those snooty terms, though. Like prepared, prepared. Like it evokes like academia a little bit, but I've, I I kind of mean just like fucking with a guitar in some kind of weird ways well, which you do all day long
2: I mean it's just the, the, the people that do it and do it for the right reasons are, are fascinated by the textural possibilities of guitar you know have you heard uh, Janet Fader
1: I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's New
2: fantastic. York. And it's weird when you when you somehow make a guitar make a sound that sort of sounds like you know screaming or industrial uh, you know oh, yeah. uh, espionage or whatever. It it really it it hits something in you emotionally. You know that stuff goes deep. Uh, it's it's amazing. She's yeah, amazing. You
1: know, yeah, she has these hypnotic tunes on there. They're just like. Talk about like fall weather kind of stuff. Like, oh, fully. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the Very autumnal. are coming out of the <laughs> shadows. Yeah. yeah. So many of your songs from this new record are just stuck in my brain. Like, for example, this little thing, I can't get it to stop. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know how you created this little loop. Oh. I'll fly it in, but. I'll oh, play okay. It it's that one that goes. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. just forget about it. Like, okay. Let's listen to a little touch okay. of that. This is a guitar player, folks. Who, uh, <laughs> There's no guitar in that song, though. I know, and it's just been stuck in my head all day. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: It's <laughs> that's, beautiful. Well, oh, that's good. I'm glad it's not something that's driving you nuts.
1: Now, I want. I'm just curious. How did you go from being someone who, at one point, didn't play guitar to being such a crazy composer. What's the first memory you ever remember of hearing some amazing music that just moved you?
2: Mu- music that moved me? You, three well, years old. Well, I'm I'm it, I'm probably the Beatles, really, because uh, I was yeah. I was I was young when they when they hit, but old enough to be cognizant. And by the you know, I was born in 1961, so uh, I was aware of what was going on, and and I did think that there was like some magic going on there. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was just it was beyond mere music but that, that like put me like
1: an Ed Sullivan moment you saw the Ed, well it was
2: or? it was more like just hearing them on the radio it, it was the mid 60s right so I was like 5-6 years old and I had a 16 year old sister who was very susceptible to mania. so she had all the records and she had all the posters oh. and, uh, and I was like vicariously getting to dig the Beatles through her uh, and I would listen to her records in the basement and stuff. And then the Beatles in '66 and '67 started to get too weird for her. You know, it was like with Revolver and Sergeant Pepper. She got off the train. I inherited all of her Beatles stuff, and I became obsessed to an annoying degree.
1: I'm starting to see some stuff here. Yes,
2: and and, uh, and the, they they really uh, uh, infected my my brain and and my soul and stuff. And
1: what are some examples of a couple songs that really? I mean, it's, how do you choose with the Beatles? But anything just popped your head into in the second?
2: Well, I mean, I always loved, uh, you know, and this is like a guitar moment that uh, it's two guitars on the record, yeah. but and your bird can sing. It's like. Tell me that you got everything you want, and your bird can sing, but you don't get me. Don't get... me! You say you've seen seven wonders And your bird is green But you don't see me Don't see... me! When your prized possession Start to weigh you down Look in my direction I'll be round I'll be round
1: Dude, you store stuff in your brain. Like that, <laughs> it's, note for note, it's still right there. Every, now, you know who would be really thrilled by that was a recent guest on the show, Paul Gilbert. Oh, dude. the way that you are singing it and also playing all this independent stuff that's independent of the melody and moving, you know. <laughs> sure, uh, a lot of eighth notes, but yeah. <laughs> but still, there's so much melodic changing. It's, on it's, it's
2: it. so, it's just like, it's like Bach or something. It's, yeah. it's, it's so logical and so ingenious and it just, it's just so pretty, you know. And then yeah. when you hear it with... You know, with beetle guitar tones and and John Lennon singing that melody. Just the sound of John Lennon's voice is unbelievable. You
1: know, vibey. Yeah. Yes,
2: it's crazy stuff. Pretty Paul cool. Gilbert is, is is so awesome. As a couple years ago, we did a, a G four guitar camp together. Yeah, and he and uh, Andy Timmons and I would uh, would stand out in the parking lot and. Uh, <laughs> challenge each other to finish uh lyric quotes from Todd Rundgren songs we're all Todd Rundgren freaks so one guy would would uh, quote a line from a Todd Rundgren song and then somebody else would have to to say the next line and this <laughs> kept us occupied you know for half hours at a time while people were waiting for you know Paul Gilbert to come inside and shred. We were playing this, uh, <laughs> this <laughs> so that really said that
1: does sound like a fun camp and Oh know. the,
2: the G four thing is so much fun. Yeah. The and one that we just did in Long Island was was such a blast, not least because uh, uh me and Brian Beller and Marco Miniman we we got to be you know, Joe Satriani's band, obviously, and my band, which we have been at times. So there was a Satriani concert we did, there was a me concert that we did, and then we were Steve Vai's band. And you know, Brian obviously had played with Steve before and I played with Steve a lot. Marco had never played with him before, so it was it was it was cool for Steve to finally experience what Marco Miniman is about because to experience Hurricane Marco? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh and we had seen Steve because we did uh, some shows together in Europe uh, a few weeks before G4. And on the last night of the tour, we kind of cornered him in the dressing room and said, "Steve, let's do the Attitude song because uh, I don't yeah. think Steve has played that song in a while." And his his first, uh, he's initially, you know, reflexively said no, and then a second later he goes, "Wait a minute," and then we were all <laughs> silent for like five seconds, and then he goes. Yes. <laughs> you know, like he just, he thought that. about it for a second and decided to do it. And it was really fun to play that song with him again after many years.
1: Yeah. Well, you've worked with all these huge like giants of guitar and composition by Zappa, yeah. Satriani, and yourself. I, I think you've shared the stage with yourself a few times. But was, <laughs> wait, was your first instrument guitar you started off on I started keys? off on, on electric organ. I had
2: the, that was my seventh birthday I got an organ. With uh, it was just one little uh, manual, one keyboard, and then a bunch of uh, buttons on the left that you push to get chords. So that's, yeah. uh, and you could like play almost like weird synthesizer pieces by by hitting the chord buttons really fast. You can you know like play chords faster than you could ever actually execute them with your with your hands. So that was like my first sort of experimental music experience. And then and then four years later, I got a guitar for my eleventh birthday, a little acoustic guitar.
1: Nice. Now when, so at some point, you got to branch out from the, the Beatles. It's, it's groundbreaking and everything. All the walls they tore down and all the you know, yeah. incredible ways they evolved music. What was yeah, the next I think phase? That, and, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that broadened my horizons more than anything, and I,
2: I kind of just only realized this lately, uh, was moving to San Diego in 1970. And for some reason, when, when we were in Long, we were in Long Island, we only listened to like records on this big uh, Magnavox, uh, you know, boat in the living room. But when when we got to San Diego, we branched out a little bit sonically, and I got this the nice stereo in my room at age eight, mm-hmm. and uh, and I started listening to FM radio. I discovered that there was an FM radio. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And FM radio in 1970 and 71 was very experimental and very freeform. So that was my experience. My first. Introduction to some, you know, some crazy shit, and back then too, DJs would like put on a, a single side of a record and then go get high. So I, I would be sitting <laughs> listening to, you know, all of side one of Tarkas by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and all of side one of uh, Islands by King Crimson, or Every Good Boy Deserves Favor by Moody Blues. They would just play, just play the whole record in the middle of the day. Um, so that stuff was mind blowing to me. I would sit in the room. In my little bedroom, with the lights off, except for this uh, color organ thing, uh, uh, this box that contained colored lights that you plugged into the to the aux out of the stereo, and it would flash oh, yeah. in time with the music. So that was my little <laughs> psychedelic. You know i was nine years old i wasn't doing any drugs but that was as close as i could get in that in that little room yeah I mean um, you know yeah. how it is and uh and so because i was an organ player and i heard emerson lake and palmer and i thought wow that is that's that's amazing i didn't know you could do that on an organ so and also the you know it was in five four that the crazy tarka riff <laughs> you know that's yeah. that's a badass riff it you know it sounds like you know if if, the, if a metal band was playing it, it would be crazy uh but it's uh, totally. it's a distorted hammond organ and uh and the sound on Tarkus is amazing the way it's engineered the sound of the bass guitar and the drums and the organ and everything on that record is just it's pristine it's crazy it's one of the yeah. best engineered records ever so that blew my mind I can talk forever about this stuff.
1: So then you just started transcribing all that stuff, just naturally, just curiosity. I would learn stuff off of records,
2: yeah. but I didn't really. I wasn't. I wasn't schooled formally so much. I had an. I had well, an organ I mean, like
1: Yeah, like, I'm gonna grab that lick. What is that?
2: Yeah, exactly. Learning stuff off of records like crazy, but rarely writing it down. I didn't. I didn't really have yeah. the discipline for that. I wasn't like a Steve Vai who was, you know, sitting transcribing on paper. Frank right. Zappa guitar solos for fun and I was I just wanted to get on to the next thing I couldn't take the time to write it down so I was just learning stuff off of records all the time when I was 16 years old I spent the summer uh, learning every gentle giant guitar part you know <laughs> you're supposed to like go out and get in trouble out on the streets when you're not in school but for me fun was uh, sitting home and figuring out how all these uh, guitar parts fit into the architecture of that crazy music you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm just, you know I never really checked him out but I've, I feel like I'm Gonna take some arrows for this, but I've heard their name forever. What, what's a good play? What's a, a good, good starting start point for, for General?
2: Uh, 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 I probably the the album Freehand, but yeah. but and it's 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 counterpoint like crazy. It's like if you listen to the the way the guitar and the keyboard parts are relating to each other, they're they're like filling in different parts of the bar. You know, the keyboard might hit on one, and the guitar will hit on one end, and then they'll just sort of like go back and forth. That's that sort of counterpoint thing is a huge part of their sound. bass lines are amazing and if you if you listen carefully you can you can often hear that the bass line is directly derived from the left hand of the keyboard player uh, but his his lines are so cool that when you put them on a kind of a grungy sounding electric bass it just sounds amazing take
0: this, take the man, middle term, middle
2: and then there's a drummer who joined uh, like the fourth album in or so and he the, the songs are very intricate but he plays them like it's like it's pub rock you know it's like wherever it's possible for him to just groove straight through all this crazy stuff he does it and it makes the stuff sound funky you know there's a lot of progressive rock doesn't sound particularly funky there's something really groovy and crazy about gentle giant and 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 also it's gets very dissonant at times but always under control you never feel like they're they're gonna hurt you badly unless it's a good kind of hurt (laughs) So what, what happens is that the uh, the keyboard starts that line, and then the guitar picks it up a beat later. So it's like. Yeah. And then while that's happening, the bass is going.
0: See me, wanna, wanna was, wanna be. That I'm not what you see. Take this and take
2: the man, middle term me. Don't you see that I and then it goes, <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, it's just it's. You can tell it's oh, like yeah. it's weird, but it's groovy too. You know, Did you, you turn into like a sixteen year old, a really amazing playing sixteen year old when you start singing. And stuff. Like, oh, <laughs> because well, my so voice young. broke. It's
2: like <laughs> and Mrs. Landis is your daughter home?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know how we possibly cover everything. Did you go to music school or anything? No, to put I had, it all together, I had or? an organ teacher who would come
2: to the house and show me stuff. Yeah.
1: But it was the, it was all the that whole musical grounding was
2: like uh, standards from the thirties and forties. That's that was. What the basis of, of her, you know, her uh, curriculum, and it, it was really good. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it showed me a lot about harmony uh, that I, you wouldn't necessarily get from only listening to rock records. For you know, sure. It's like, I, I learned a lot of standards where the.
1: It's just like yeah. oh, that's. The songs are timeless. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely
2: gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was what I was learning uh, for to to please my teacher, and th- meanwhile I would be teaching myself stuff from Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and uh, and Focus, and Jeff Beck, and Yes, and eventually Zappa. You know that that really yeah. took hold when I was nine, and there was a kid across the street who said you're a weird kid and i think that you can relate to this music and he had freak out and he played me help i'm a rock and i said i need that album you know i had I had to acquire it in a trade i remember <laughs> i got that album i got the first black sabbath record uh i think tommy uh i i remember like really doing good in this in this trade did you have to give up for those i can't remember so it couldn't have been anything i really needed
1: <laughs> yeah. nice yeah <laughs> So, so, so,
2: you know, I became obsessed with Zappa at that point.
1: And how old were you then? Like 13? I was nine. Nine, nine years yeah. old? That's right. You just.
2: <laughs> yeah. Obsessed um, with
1: Zappa at nine? Well, yeah. Uh, and I had. I, the thing is, I
2: had seen him. That says a lot. In, the, like, Hit Parader magazine and stuff. And there was this record store called Soundsville that I used to go to when I was, like, eight, nine years old and, and just, like, look at all the psychedelic posters. It's 1970, so it's very patchouli ridden in there. You know, and a lot yeah. of black light posters and. You know, and looking at the Blood Rock records and whatnot. And then there was a poster of Frank Zappa in the back. It was one of him, you know, the, there's a lot, there's several different versions of posters of him sitting on the toilet. And this right. is one of them. But it's a side view. And he's got his his chin resting on his fist. And he's grimacing at the camera in a really kind of uh, sinister way. And I was terrified by that poster. So my first experience with Zappa was, was fear. And then, uh, and then I saw The Mothers with Flo and Eddie on The Dick Cavett Show. I was lucky to have parents who would allow me to stay up late enough to watch The Dick Cavett Show when I was nine. And, uh, and The Mothers were on, and they played. You know, they, they looked really, really ugly, and I expected the music to be ugly. And then they played Sofa, which is a beautiful song. You know? I am Just a really, you know, it's gorgeous beautiful. melody, yeah. uh, and I didn't expect that from the group that looked like this. So I was, you know, fascinated right away by that dichotomy, you know, the way he looked and the way he sounded. And then when I heard uh, "Help I'm a Rock," which is just a an an on, onslaught uh, sonically, uh, but at that age, I just thought it was hysterically funny and and <laughs> super super weird. And uh, you know, and I had a taste for weird humor. I used to, I loved you know comedy on on television, and I loved Mad Magazine, and I was you know way into that stuff when I was a kid, and I still am. Like most like most musicians, I'm a comedy nerd. Yeah. Um, so uh, Zappa seemed to to like straddle that world, you know. And then the more I, I heard other records, the next record I heard was uh, was Fillmore East, uh, which was very different from Freak Out and super, you know licentious and and lewd and obscene and stuff so i got that for my 11th birthday the same day i got a guitar that's when i I learned to start listening to records with headphones on because i didn't want my mom hearing the stuff that i was (laughs) listening to um but then i heard we're only in it for the money and that was the album that completely blew my mind i said oh okay this this dude is a genius and uh and i then became obsessed so how old were you then i guess i was 10. And, and the way I heard we're only in it for the money was a kid at at elementary school who was a yard monitor. They had slightly older kids whose job it was to monitor the schoolyard, which basically just meant he, sted, he stood there. And right. if somebody mm-hmm. hit somebody else, he would tell them to stop. Uh, but we would just get into conversations about, about music. You know, he somehow noticed that there was something uh, – uh, unconventional about me, and struck up a conversation, and it turned out that he was also like antisocial, misfit, weird kid, and uh, and so we had connected on that basis. And he said, "I'm going to bring you some music," and he brought me uh, the "Living in the Past" album by Jethro Tull, and "We're Only in It for the Money" by Zappa, and um, and once again, my mind was blown. That's the cool thing about being a kid: <laughs> your mind has the capacity to be well and truly blown all the time because exactly. you're experiencing things for the first time all the time. Um, so I, I was just, it was just the right time. And I was like, I was the right target demographic for that stuff. And I, I just loved that. And so I loved peculiar music, unconventional music, stuff that's adventurous and weird. And that obviously came, comes out in all of my stuff.
1: You know, it's like, it'd be hard to probably talk about all of your, yeah Teens and plus and i have once uh,
2: this is stuff I can talk about forever I oh, I love it I know but you
1: you had like probably had some bands and stuff, and I don't that's know that's interesting we i like, uh, I wasn't as
2: into the idea of gigging then as I was recording, and my brother who's Marty, who's three years older than me, he was he didn't really have much time for the when I was playing the organ. there was nothing particularly cool about the organ it's a pretty you know it's a pretty wholesome instrument uh but when I got a guitar that that got his attention and and uh I started showing him some stuff and then we started playing together, and that just the natural outgrowth of that is wanting to record stuff we both had the a, a kind of a uh private uh inclinations we'd kind of like to be uh left to our own devices and uh and we also were just fascinated by, by the possibilities of recording. So we got a reel to reel tape recorder, four track, and we set up in the living room and would try to replicate songs that we loved from Jeff Beck and Santana, Crosby Stills and Nash and Neil Young and, and uh, ELP and Yes and Genesis and Return to Forever and all this stuff. So yeah. that's that was when I was a little bit older, like I was, say, thirteen, fourteen, and he was sixteen, seventeen, and we that was it, that was our garage, and that you know that was our version of a garage band was like recording in the in the living room for years.
1: That's dope. <laughs> yeah. learn how to bounce and stuff. Yeah,
2: we, eventually we got a two track so that we could d- bounce down and do mixes that way, and and we recorded hours of stuff, what and else? then gradually I started getting more interested in songwriting and that was the beginning of what went on to be called the tar tapes which was a bunch of cassettes that 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 we made throughout the 80s uh and uh at that point he like focused entirely on engineering and i was we got a drum machine the you know the oberheim dmx we got that in 1982 and we spent days programming one song it was like getting <laughs> super super like detail oriented and obsessive about every little thing and then A guy from Oberheim heard our our drum program through a a friend of ours who was working at a music store. And he said, that's the most advanced drum programming I've ever heard. (laughs) The guy was working at at the Oberheim thing. And we were just like freakishly, uh, you know, obsessed with it. It was like like, Aphex Twin levels of uh, obsession.
1: Um, So we just had a good time. (laughs) So where did you go from there? Like when you're finished high school or whatever no music yeah well training it's a, or? It's a,
2: I no, it, it's like I had an, a pretty unbelievable father who was like really supportive and when I was nearing the end of high school I, I I hadn't I had you know no clear idea of what I what I wanted to do other than make music you know so I I, I went to my dad and said well I guess I got to figure out you know am I going to school am I getting a job what, what's happening and he, and his immediate response is no that's not your job is to is to write songs you know he had been like buying me equipment and encouraging me through all this time because he he had a pretty clear vision that that was what i was supposed to be doing epic dad yeah epic dad 100 percent. thank you joseph patrick uh and he he uh you know he made it possible for me to just continue experimenting and, and figuring out what i was doing musically and yeah. that's when, you know, Marty and I started doing all the recording. And, and gradually we decided, oh, maybe it would be fun to do this on stage. So we got, you know, some bass players and drummers and quickly learned that you can't play your own music on stage. So we had to, we, you know, and expect to get hired in a bar in San Diego or El Cajon. Right. So, uh, really so, quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, maybe we should try to make a living or at least try to earn something musically. Uh so we did the top 40 thing for a few years and that was how I was spending you know about 2 years before the Zappa thing hit and uh and that was just pure serendipity that I happened to call his office and ask for a job during a time when he you was in need of You don't happen to just call. <laughs> well so
1: what happened there? Well
2: <laughs> he had said after the 84 tour that he was uh, you know long before I was in the band he did the tour in 1984 and he lost money on that tour. Every tour that he did in the 80s he lost money. So he said after that one, I'm through. I'm tired of losing money. I'm tired of, you know, issues with with band members. I'm I don't want to I don't really want to spend time with humans anymore. I'm going to get this. I've got this uh, Sinclair computer sampling musical instrument that will play anything that I could imagine or I can program it to to to, you know, make all of my musical dreams come true. And it never misses a note and it never, you know, it does blow in the bathroom during a rehearsal <laughs> or to show up late because, you know, there's a drug deal that went bad and he has to go after a guy with a gun, you know. It's, it's, so he, he's like, I'm going to hang out with the, com- with the computer for a couple of years. And he did. And but then in late 1987, I heard that he was back in rehearsal with a new band. It was on the 818 Pumpkin uh, Hotline, which was the Zappa information phone number 818 pumpkin you'd call it up and you'd get a recorded message saying whatever frank was up to and as a hardcore fan i would call every week and, and one week it said frank's in rehearsal with a new band and i got up I, I, I got up the gumption to call up the next day during the day when there were people in the office and said i don't know if frank's looking for anyone but i'm i'm here i play guitar and i, and I play keyboards and i sing and i i have all the frank's records like you know and i know all of his stuff And that got translated to Frank that I know all of his stuff, meaning I I can play every single one of them. (laughs) So Frank called me himself the next day and said, "You can play all. You know all my songs. You can play all of my songs." And I backpedaled slightly. Said, "Well, you know, I've I've got all your records." So wait, how
1: old are you? In the twenty-five. And how do you feel when you hear your hero? I picked up the phone,
2: and 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 a lady's voice said, "Will you hold for Frank (laughs) Zappa?" And I said, yeah, (laughs) you know, that's how I felt. It's like, okay, my life is changing right now. You know, this is, this is, I did not, this is completely unforeseen because it was an act of insane optimism to call his office in the first place and ask for a job. What I subsequently found out is that I called up saying that I could sing and play guitar and play keyboards. He had just fired a keyboard player. And there was a, a guitarist vocalist in the band who had just gone missing. So within days of, of one another, he was in need of all those positions. And that was when I called saying that I could do all of them and that I knew all of his songs. So yeah. he's like, I don't believe you, get your ass up here and prove it. You know. So, so he told know. me a couple of things to, to learn on the phone, one of which I had never played before, which is called uh, What's New in Baltimore, just this fairly crazy thing. Oops. you know it's a, it's a, it's it's crazy it's all yeah, over yeah. the place so i had to figure that out in a day and then there was another one called sinister footwear too which is starts off really pretty and it's just like beautiful chords beautiful. yeah and then as as it continues on it gets into these crazy melodies it's like
0: <laughs>
2: that's that's the uh I can't remember the lines exactly, but it's it's insane, you know? Oh, whatever. It's gone. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and then you know, stuff He was just like a lot of this stuff was in my memory because when I was growing up, it was my idea of fun to try to figure out this insane stuff. And I had never even dreamt that some of these things could be done on guitar until I heard Steve Vai play them with, with Frank in the early 80s. Like, specifically this melody by Mon- on, from Montana, on the record, it's marimbas, you know, and so a marimba can really execute these...
0: Huh.
2: Not the most forgiving tone for, for playing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the, that, those type of melodies that fascinated me when I was, was real young. And I had to try to figure it out. And Steve uh, was the first guy who played stuff like this on a guitar. You know? And the, the floodgates and, and heaven's gates opened at that point. It's like, oh, okay. I got to try yeah. and figure out how to do that.
1: So what was the day like when you first met Frank? You were walking up the stairs or whatever, or down the stairs. Yeah, well,
2: I was was in San San Diego. He was in LA. So my brother drove me up for the audition, and I sat in the back of the car, attempting to play every Frank Zappa song (laughs) I could think of in a a two and a half hour car ride, which is not likely with three hundred songs. But I just like I was going a little crazy, trying to think of everything I could think of, and if I like couldn't play a note. I would say, like, oh, my God, how how am I going to pass the audition? I, I can't remember what that note is or something. And and he, my brother Marty, stopped the car and pulled over to look at me, like, look at me right in the eyes and say, you are never going to be more ready for this audition than you are right this moment. Wow. And I was, like, completely <laughs> impressed by his wisdom. <laughs> and and the fact that, Yeah, you know, he just, like, he, he calmed me down, like, incredibly. Uh, and yeah. uh, so I just... I enjoyed playing the guitar in the car for the rest of the trip, and then I didn't bother putting the guitar in the case when we got to the rehearsal studio. I just I walked in the front door holding the guitar, uh, and Frank's you know first thing he said when he saw me was, "Hey, nice case," <laughs> and Great. and then I plugged into Ike Willis's amplifier, and he asked me to play the songs that he had told me to play on the phone, and then you know he just started testing my. Uh, you know the width of, of my knowledge of his music and he's just saying "Okay, do you know uh, we're turning again which is an example of a song that i hadn't played before but i had listened to it so many millions of times that it was you know imprinted in my consciousness so i was like okay just give me a second you know i's like uh, and i know in my head that it starts na na but i've never played that before but i know it starts with the note na sounds like okay so na it sounds kind of pentatonic yeah. So okay. And, and uh, so what I like demonstrated to him in real time was that even a song that I didn't know right away, I could call it up from real that sucker in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so that got his attention, and he had me play some keyboards. He had me read some stuff. My sight reading is not that slick, so that that you know I I didn't win any points for that. But he was you know real intrigued by the fact that he could ask me to play a song and I would I would play it. So. And I, that I could do it on two instruments. And then we, we harmonized together. And he said, I think our voices blend well together, but there's this kind of shakiness to your voice that I'm not sure about. And I said, I don't, I don't always have that. I'm a little <laughs> nervous right now. But uh, I promise I can, I can smooth that shit out. So we, you know, we had a good time. It was really fun. Yeah. And when it was done, he shook my hand and said, well, because the only people in the room were him and I and my brother and, uh, and Bob Rice, who was his Sinclair assistant. And uh, so he said, "We'll come back on Monday, so the rest of the band can witness your particular splendor."
1: Beautiful story. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the Frank Zappa audition story. Is there anything about Frank that people don't understand? That uh, probably like, all kinds of things. I mean, like as a musician, or like is there anything? <laughs> mm, well, that you I like mean, to
2: I, I think a lot of people realize that he's a guitar player, uh, but a lot of people. You know, I don't know, it's hard to say what the current perception is, but I I know for a long time it was hard to get people to realize that he was even a serious musician because a lot of, you know, the surface aspects of his image were freaky. You know, it's like the the, the way he hit me when I just looked at him when I was a kid before I ever heard him. I, I formed a picture in my head of what must this guy sound like. And then the first time I actually heard his music, I was taken aback by how really beautiful it was. And I think that maybe that is something that people don't realize about him is that he was capable of writing some of the most astonishingly, you know, it's like heart-rippingly beautiful melodies and things. Uh, And when he was playing the guitar, he was fearless and not at all interested in, like, learning licks and trotting them out on stage to impress people. He was completely, he wanted the band to impress people. like he... He told me specifically, people come to these shows, after I was in the band, he said, people come to these shows to have their mind blown. People expect the band to just be incredibly hot, really, really good. That's why we had to rehearse for four months. We rehearsed for four months for a four-month tour. Wow. Uh, and we ended up with a repertoire of 120 songs. And so he, he said, uh, you know, that's, so the, the band has to be incredibly good. But when it came time for a guitar solo, all he wanted to do was sort of like relax and, and experiment. And it, it it when he was improvising, it was taking in all aspects of the sound on stage and everything that the musicians behind him were playing in that moment and just the environment and what the audience is doing. And he would boil all that down and you know when he was when he, when he had it all going on, he could create a completely improvised statement that was you know, it was, it was beyond a mere solo and and definitely not just like a guy who's who's blowing and and, and playing stuff he's practiced it's like really adventurous really um in in just like ingenious uh creative non-stop just like spinning out uh so many beautiful lines and moments and sounds you know it's crazy
1: anything you specifically remember learning from him like other than i mean these huge things but any like Small moments that you remember, or um, funny well, moments? I mean, I just uh, the, the,
2: watching him—the way he
1: would lead a band was incredibly
2: influential. Just, he—it was just to realize that what what he really wanted, you know, what did Frank Zappel want? What's, what was his motivation? He 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 wanted a laugh a, a large portion of the time. He really, when we were having a good time at rehearsal, we would be getting a huge amount of stuff done, but we would, all our sides would be aching from laughing. You know, it would be really really great uh, it, I, th- I think that if it was cost effective he would be happy to just he would have been more happy to just rehearse forever because it was again the stakes are low and, and you're, you're, the, you don't have the additional tension and pressures of touring which kind of sunk that band uh, you know that, that, it, there were unfortunate sort of dr- drama things that happened between the members of that band that ended, ended the group prematurely and that was unfortunate um, but like when we what? were just all up in LA rehearsing, we were all <laughs> happy.
1: <laughs> Sounds like a great, incredible era. Mm-hmm. Did, what did else? What did Frank have any like? like what did he do when he wasn't doing music? Did he have anything else that he ever did that he liked to do? He's, he's not that
2: sort of guy to take vacations. He wasn't interested in, in time in downtime. He Bowling. Would get, he would get restless. He wanted to just be uh, composing all the time. That's right. what he dug was
1: to compose. I, man, well. Yeah. If anyone carries that torch and has that same possessed possessedness that's you. Well, thank you. I swear to god. How do as a musician myself, I'm always struck when I I've only seen Zappa play Zappa, never seen never got to see Frank. And uh but I've seen ZPZ 3 times and I just it's just astonishing to me. Oh, it's th- incredible. That and I imagine it was the same with Frank that anybody could remember this all that <laughs> stuff like well, even it's, one it's, song let alone 15 songs or something yeah well it's kind of funny it's it's like it it's all
2: you know where where how you're wired and where your head's at the thing that's interesting to me about you know like a a, a melody like the black page which is a It's obviously a very strange melody, but yeah. once you've got it, you know, in your fingers, once you've got it sort of programmed into your muscle memory, you can't mistake it for anything else. It's it's like this is the sort of thing that, you know, unlike a a like a a, a blues tune that that has maybe a, a tricky kind of turnaround on the on the sixteenth bar that that not every other blues song has maybe that's like impossible for me to remember because by the time you get to that part of the song your brain is, is somewhat numbed by your expectations of how a blues song is supposed to go and right. then and then i i had this problem some uh, with with learning satriani's music when i first got in the band because for the first tour that we did we had a, a a succession of songs or you know like a group of songs maybe four or five songs that had quite similar solo vamps grooves you know and and that's what like that's what freaks my head up is is when i have to remember the the distinctions between similar things with zappa i never had that issue every composition just felt like its own little flower or something <laughs> that that once it got once once i had absorbed it it's never going to go away you know which is not to say that right. i don't screw up you know it's like before when i was trying to play that melody and uh, in whatchamacallit, uh, Sinister Footwear. Oh, I think I remember it. Let's <laughs> see, I remembered it. I just, I just had to chill out, you know. The, the, the stuff is in there. Uh, and the, the fact that your muscles uh, have to learn this specific configuration, and then that gets programmed into your muscle memory, uh, it, it, you know, there's no other melody that makes your muscles do precisely that thing. So it, somehow I think that makes it easier to call up later. I don't know, but I also just really, really love Frank Zappa music. I think you have
1: special wiring. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs>
1: all you guys, Jamie Kime, watching you guys yeah, play yeah. all that stuff, and then
2: but the, and then Zappa plays Zappa is remarkable because not only are they playing the songs, Dweezel is like incredibly dedicated to um, mm-hmm. replicating the the sonic the textures of those original records. You know, Frank himself wasn't interested in that. Frank wanted to like evolve the music on a, on a nightly basis, and the, and the concerts never really sounded like the records at all. But Dweezil justifiably is is in love with the sound of those records, and he knows that the Zappa fans are also deeply in love with the sound of those records. And when you go see that stuff live, and it essentially they're you know recreating an album listening experience for you so beautifully um that's that's emotionally very heavy you know it's it's really crazy you know there's oh, yeah. a lot of people end up in tears uh, in, at uh, zappa plays zappa shows including dweezil actually i know that he gets very emotional about it
1: yeah it is incredible it's like watching an orchestra of all these different instruments you know yeah
2: and uh, it's, a de- it's definitely a very specific discipline and if you don't have genuine at least true admiration and and uh you know affection for the music
1: uh it's it's gonna be a really painful gig <laughs> you, know? uh, you got kind of a cool little thing two for one with you with the keys and the uh, guitar getting oh. hired like that's cool that uh satriani snatched you up as well with marco and yeah and, and uh brian beller mm-hmm. of course Ninjas, yeah, <laughs> cold-blooded killers. You guys, guys <laughs> taking a prisoner. So, uh, talk about Joe for a second. I mean, this guy is—he's—it's he's, so fun, man. That 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 that,
2: that whole—I mean, the band is, is fantastic, but the the whole Joe's whole organization is just a real pleasure. The whole touring machine is real cozy. You know, it's like a very very nice vibe out there on the road with that band. So it's. Incredibly pleasurable to go out for a couple of months with Joe, and then he's so, he's so fantastic. He's like such a great guitar player, and insanely, you know, just consistent. Really, really uh, delivers every single night. You know, he's and, and the tone is 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 beyond anything. You know, it's like just the thickest, yeah. coolest tone, and uh, and he's just you know playing his ass off, and and uh, you know going up and saying next to him. And improvising together or trading solos and stuff is is daunting. You know, he's just he really has his thing together. Uh, but it's it's inspiring. You know, you don't want, you don't want to stand up there and just be a schlub. So he he definitely draws something out. We we spur each other on when we're when we're doing the solos back and forth. You know, it's like it's <laughs> sometimes great. he'll promise that he'll he'll keep it short if we're you know playing a gig that has like a curfew or something. But those type of jam moments or the long the Woodstock endings the, like, the, the, the jam out endings of songs are sometimes as long as the song themselves but you know Joe's having a good time up there and he really does like become a different person like the last album that we did uh, Shockwave Supernova that name is uh, is his name for his alter ego on stage basically he becomes this guy he's, you know him he's yeah. very soft spoken yeah. on stage on stage he's gets very gregarious and it's and it's, a, it's a cool thing to see it's really fun and then of course yeah. Mar- uh, Brian and Marco are both you know guys I've played with Brian I've played with forever you know we're super close friends and uh, and so for for them to then come into the Satriani band and and, and completely change the, the dynamic musically uh, as well as just you know the personalities in the group. It's. I feel very comfortable there. It's very much a a, a place that I'm familiar with and, and happy.
1: <laughs> what a, yeah. What a great, great gig. And Joe, uh, he brings melody to people too. Like on such a huge scale. Like yeah. Like you're playing for huge rooms a lot of the time. I think with yeah. Joe. Yeah, and and it's traveling and, well. I bet. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, and we're we're lucky too that that Joe likes to to
2: travel well. So we're, we're you know we we all get to benefit from that and we're comfortable out there. But yeah, he's he sells tickets to shows for instrumental guitar music, you know, it's, and, and it's precisely because of what you say. It's the melodic aspect. That's what people really relate to, I think. They see a guy who's, who's shredding, a guy who's got, you know, a huge bag of tricks and, and can do all this stuff that they get off on, but he's also playing, you know, songs with very recognizable melodies that have uh, content that moves people, you know, people are emotionally touched by his stuff. And it used to be similar to when I was in Vi's band and I was a bit more, I think I was maybe a, a little snobbish or something back then because uh, he would, you know, I I thought that there was something strange about the fact that he had learned his solos and that he would go up on stage and, and, and play the solos that were on the record. And I was right at the time that I joined his band, I was really enthralled to Coltrane. I was like only listening to Coltrane. So part of me was like, Coltrane would never learn a solo, you know. But then I, you know, started doing shows with Vi, and I saw how people would respond when he played "For the Love of God," which it's is, you know, it you could potentially play, uh, you know, other things over those 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 chords, but that's not what that song is about. It's not about blowing over changes. It's about playing precisely those notes because he chose them for a very specific reason in the studio, and he goes up on stage and he plays that thing, plays the hell out of it, and audiences scream and cry and, you know, and throw their arms up in the air because they're so moved by it. You know, I've seen that over and over again, guys singing every single mm-hmm. note of the, uh, of the solo while yeah, he's yeah. playing. You know, that's, that's something that you don't get when even the most brilliant musician, when Alan Holdsworth is, is you know, improvising uh, effortlessly and, and making you feel like you should never pick up a guitar again, nobody the audience is singing along with it. You know, it's a very different kind of experience. And uh, and a lot of people, when they listen to Alan Holdsworth, they, you know, their brain just like shorts out, you know, they cannot compute, you know, Steve, you know, although he in some ways became like a poster child for some people of the excesses of guitar heroism. And, you know, sadly, yeah. Steve Vai's name is often invoked as like some kind of thing that you ought not to be because he knows how to play a guitar so damn well, you know. That's it's that it was it was worse in the '90s than it is now, uh, right? Yeah, but but I I think that you know when a guy is that adept, it would be criminal for him not to do what what he does. It's like there's not that many people who can play a guitar like that. Of course, he should play the guitar like that. <laughs> if you yeah. can, you must.
1: <laughs> well, let's check out some of these tunes in, on your new album, All which right. is uh, just amazing. Are you selling it mostly as a as a two CD set, or is it kind of like available two different ways? The 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 physical album of
2: Scambot Two is a, a, a two CD set. That's the only physical object. So it's two albums, really. The first disc is Scambot Two, which is a a narrative thing, it's the sequel to Scambot one, so it's this storyline that's developing over time. Prague opera. It's something <laughs> of a prog opera, I guess. And then the second album, which is called Inkling, is music that did not fit into the the conceptual framework of Scambot 2, but was recorded at the same time, and there's all stuff that was in contention at one time or another for, uh, for being on Scambot 2. But Scambot 2 ended up being what it was, and then there's this additional 48 minutes of music formed this this other album that I was completely satisfied with I think it really stands alone as, as you are album. so
1: prolific it's like here's like a 15 song album and here's like 16 bonus tracks <laughs> that just didn't fit in the first line <laughs> Um, there's a really cool like uh, booklet in there too with all the lyrics and
2: yeah there's there's a very elaborate
1: storyline yeah. and, and drawings of all the characters and
2: it's you know very very elaborate artwork. 2016 i have a real fondness for a physical package that is you know filled with stuff and you know it's like it's uh, that's i really like spending time with an entire album and just putting yourself in the world of that album Grab up the listener and take them along on a journey, and that's what is exciting. To
1: Man, I, every time I hear it, I hear more and more stuff. It's just so many layers and twists and turns, and you create a different world on every song. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, like on the, you've got like one of the world's shortest songs. <laughs> Mystery song or something. Oh, mystery song on inkling. yeah, on it's, inkling. it's four seconds long. four seconds long. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> you could loop it and it would sound cool or something. And <laughs> you guys suppose you could. But the very first song on Bot is like a ten minute Odyssey. yeah.
2: I, th- I thought that it, well, it, it suited my purposes in terms of the storyline, but I also thought that it it really uh, kind of worked for the album to start with the the, the densest, craziest thing because uh, it is. It's ten minutes long and it's it's very information packed. There's, there's a lot of action in that song. And then I, I thought from that point on I wanted that to be just like an explosion that, that's sort of like, it's like the, the big bang that sets the album in motion. And then as the album goes on it actually gets more spacious and, and there's like a little more oxygen in the arrangements and, and the, the melodies become clearer and the arrangements uh, become not quite so layered and dense. Uh, and you know, by the end of the record, it's this very sort of uncluttered listening experience, and it's just, that whole the whole album is sort of like a, a clearing away, and there's going to be eventually three Scambots, and th- the whole three-part saga will also kind of describe that same uh, action. Like, Scambot 1 is is really very, you know, pretty dense and intricate, pretty much all the way through until the very last song, and, uh, and then Scambot 2, in comparison to Scambot 1 has... More space in it, more air in it, and then Scanbot Three when that comes out, you know, years from now, it'll be like my version of a Brian Eno record. It's very ambient and wide, wide spaces. And that's
1: well, that's what I love about this record is it has all of those elements you just described, you know, all in one-stop shopping. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I mean, like talk about the widespread kind of ambient sound. I don't even know how you say this word. It's on the it's on the inkling, bogey or boji. Oh, uh, uh, Bogue, B o b o g h e. <laughs> is that? A, what, I'm, I should know what that
2: is. Uh, no, you shouldn't. It's not a you real made word. Up. <laughs> it's not the capital of like. Uh, <laughs> it's,
0: it was. Uh, it's, it's the.
2: It's the. Uh, it's an island uh, in the, in. I can't remember whether it made it into the final plot line of Scambot. It was one of the things that you know. It's it's basically it was a narrative and musical outtake from from Scambot that described as this physical place that I for whatever reason decided to name Bogue. yeah that's that is a a pretty ambient piece you're right it's just like these slow-moving synthesizers and stuff until the guitar comes in these these acoustic guitar sort of interruptions that come in and then the electric guitar comes in at the end playing this you know really unusual melody and stuff
1: just gorgeous where did you uh, get the inspiration for those chord changes in that song yeah um, just um, that actually was,
2: that was recorded in Lyle Workman's studio the, the, those synthesizer tracks in the late 90s while, while I was doing music for uh, Court TV And I recorded like so many hues, like a bunch of stuff, huge amounts of stuff. And I, I they said, well, you can keep, uh, you can keep the, uh, the, you know, these songs. You, these are your songs. You can do whatever you want with them. So that was awesome. I got paid to do the soundtracks, and I was, I got the use of all this music that I did. So a bunch of that ended up on Knocker Tomf, and other parts of it have been on, like, uh, you, you Must Be This Tall and Wine and Pickles. And I think some of it may have snuck onto be fantastic and stuff i've just been repurposing this music over the years and some of it is still around And, and but that particular piece that's on inkling is, is like one of the, the the cooler things from all those soundtracks and, and then i i overdubbed all the
1: guitars whatever like 15 years later <laughs> oh man just gorgeous now tell me about the tone of this solo one i think it's called roots twist oh yeah screaming tone <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's that's a that was like a good. Uh, let's see, that was probably a combination of of the Rivera mic'd up and then a clean track, which we then routed to some uh, yeah. you know some virtual amp. So I, I think it's a it's a combination of mic'd amplifier and and virtual amplifier. You and me fall down on a face flat, jump and run straight to Mahogany Square. Try to a jetpack, tell every to get back. Sick man on a space rat, we are both there. We father, could licks, he's father. There's a place made for hiding away. Be father, could licks, he's father. Life took, I shook a lot on that day. There's a feather, twirling above the heather, riding that bound in leather, come and be lost.
1: Et cetera, et cetera. That's, a, that's, that's a fun song to play. You can actually play your songs. Yeah. <laughs> Most people are like, oh, a new album. i got to learn it. Shit. Oh, well, it's some of the stuff I had to
2: learn. I actually just did uh, some, some play-along videos for, uh, for EMG last week. Oh, cool. Where I did this
1: song. And are I'm those for... EMGs? Those are like a white cases, but EMGs. I don't know. Yeah, these are yeah. Uh, essays
2: from the, from the, when did I get these? Single Probably coils. Like, 1990, 91 or something. I've had them a long time. Yeah. um but yeah i did i did this song roots twist and i did the first half of in the trees and the song sam and another song called roll so yeah. i had to learn this i had to learn how to play the songs against to, to do that but i'm going to be playing a bunch of this stuff on the road with with brian beller and, and joe travers uh at the end of october yeah. beginning of november we're doing a, a bunch of dates in chicago and the east and the south and it's then like coming them. to Baked Potato we'll be on big we'll be at the Baked Potato Sunday November 6th and then Tuesday November 8th election day we will be uh we'll be playing at the Baked Potato on the on election night so no matter what happens that night uh hopefully we will uh, we'll have some yeah badly needed uh, community there <laughs> always a great community at the tater and mm-hmm. uh, the the show on November 6th is a trio show with me and Brian and Joe Travers and then uh, the show on election night, uh, Rick Musalam will be joining us. and will be a, a, quart- a quartet that night.
1: Dude, you play with so many great guitar players. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get them all. Rick is fantastic. You know, who were you just talking about? Lyle Workman. Lyle Workman's amazing. amazing. You know, Musalem is amazing. Def- Brendan. I Brendan get- is amazing. Dude, please, let's tell me, tell me about this great friend of ours, Brendan Small. Like, mm. you, you do so much stuff with him. I was blown away when I first saw Death Clock. Because you were on the bill with some seriously savage hardcore metal bands. Mm-hmm. And then you guys came out in like the middle slot. I can't remember, was it Slayer or somebody or? Oh, um was that uh was that at like a festival or, or like something? Like at the Palladium, that particular gig I'm thinking
2: of. I think we were probably with Mastodon on that tour. Yeah, I think it was Mastodon. Yeah. Mastodon and
1: and Converge and High on Fire, I think was was who was on that tour. I mean, this—the screen above you—it's like the size of a basketball court or something, right. and it's just so genius. And yeah. then this is—I guess this is Brendan's vision, but it's the way it works. Yeah, it's—it's it's, well, the, the entire show has a visual component
2: up on the screen. So while we're playing on stage, Gene Hoagland, you know, legend, our drummer—is—is uh, is, got a, a headphones on, so he's hearing a click, and he's hearing. Cues from the, the video soundtrack to keep us synchronized with all the action on the screen. So, everything that we're playing, either the, the cartoon death clock is up on the screen playing the same song, or there's some conceptual video, animated video thing that is illustrating the lyrics. So, but we, you know, obviously it's a very tightly <laughs> controlled show. There's no room for anything to go astray. We have to be in sync with the video for the entire hour of the show. So Gene is the one who's got the, the high pressure you know the situation there. All we have to do is play with Gene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but Brendan's achievement on this thing was crazy because you know he he came from from you know from love of guitar and love of metal and he was a, a, in the mid nineties he was a, a guitar student at Berkeley and he's thoroughly schooled and he's he's learning all that stuff. Uh, but he's, he 's he doesn 't like have a a band or um, he 's not performing live and 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 I th- probably some i think he was even having some issues with stage fright the idea of getting up on stage to play guitar so he started doing stand up <laughs> as a <laughs> means of combating stage fright which is the single most terrifying yeah. thing you can do is stand up <laughs> comedy you know yeah. uh theres, there's like so, that 's so vulnerable it 's so crazy i i have so so much admiration. Uh,
1: for stand-up comedians. It's an I know, really it is, incredible discipline. What does discipline. Seinfeld say? That They say that people's biggest fear is public speaking, even bigger than death. That means they'd rather be the guy in the coffin <laughs> than the person delivering the eulogy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it,
1: true. So he goes and does stand-up. Mm-hmm. To <laughs> combat stage
2: fright. So then you know, his, he develops this sort of like parallel life where he's – doing more and more comedy and, and getting, you know, successful in that realm. But, and then he's like, he had the show home movies, uh, in the, in the late nineties, early aughts. And, uh, and my girlfriend Sarah and I would watch home movies on, uh, adult swim. And we loved it. And it was really funny that the, the main character was a little kid named Brendan small as whose voice is, you know, Brendan's voice sped up. And, uh, and Coach McGurk is uh, H. John Benjamin, who's a totally hysterical guy. And the, the, most of the dialogue is like improvised dialogue based on, a, on the, whatever the plot line is. And it's really funny. And the music is like all this crazy guitar stuff. And so it, we, I noticed right away, what the heck? What is this music? And it was Brennan Small. Brennan did the, the music in addition to you know starring in the show and writing it and all this stuff. So, okay, this guy's interesting. 2006, I'm in Europe. Sarah, my girlfriend, sends me a message. This is the era of MySpace. She goes, hey, Brendan is on MySpace. You should, you, should, uh, you should write him a note and say hey. So, okay, you know why not? I went on MySpace and I sent him a message. And I was like, hey, I, I don't know if you, have, if you know who I am, a guitar player. I played with Zappa and stuff. And, and my girlfriend and I really love your show. And uh, you know, she saw that you were on MySpace, so I thought I would say hey. So he wrote back and the first word in the in the message was dude with about 15 years <laughs> and then and then he said i'm am a huge fan i i saw you when i was a student at berkeley you came in 1996 and you did a, a performance in a clinic and i was there and you blew my mind and we need to get together you know and and he said i'm i'm doing a bunch of stuff i'm working on some crazy uh you know this insane uh, metal idea for a metal cartoon i don't know what's going to happen but we're we're trying to make it happen so this is right when death clock was coming in, into being and uh metal and uh and so he came to my shows and we started hanging out and gradually you know death clock happened and the the show premiered and and metal you know premiered and people lost their minds over it like Metalocalypse was exactly the right show at the right
1: time so you played did you play on some of the soundtrack recordings songs
2: I, i've done some so, some voice stuff i i i, I sang on this yeah. thing uh the doomstar requiem uh, yeah i sang the part of Toki wartooth and that thing uh but all the the guitar on the on the cartoon and on the albums the death clock albums is brendan yeah. so you know, they put out an album, of music from the show. Okay, let's see how that does. It like becomes the fastest-selling death metal album in U.S. history. You know, people are hungry for death clock music, uh, and then he's. I guess I better put together a band, and he asked me, if, "Would you be in this band with me?" And, Do you think Brian Beller would like to be in the band? Because Brian was in my band since the '90s. And I like I would love to be in this band, but I'm not a metal player. You know, I've never I never played metal. And he goes, Oh, it's nothing. It's not it's not hard. You you know you played Zappa, You can do it. You know, <laughs> never mind that the techniques that come into play with just yeah. you know the jackhammer rhythms and the galloping rhythms and the and the sweeping and all that stuff and fast and, and fast. You know, it has to be executed very quickly. So basically, my job was to play whatever Brendan's first overdub is. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. uh, and also use the, uh, the, like a harmonizer so that I can do you know, two part harmony sometime or often I'm doing double stops to, to do the second and third harmonies above whatever Brendan's melody line is his stuff's so beautiful and uh, well I mean he's so as, as you know from doing Galacticon he's so enthralled to Brian May you know uh, and so that, that, that sound is just like all throughout Death Clock those harmonized guitars <laughs> But what's crazy about Brandon is that, okay, so he's the mastermind behind Death Clock. He's doing all the the guitar playing on the records. On stage, he's doing the vast majority of the soloing. And he's doing Nathan Explosion the vocals, so yeah. while he's simultaneously going, you know, so he's doing the vocals and lead guitar at the same time. And he's never even been in a band before. He's never performed music live, you know, in any kind of serious fashion. So he completely it, the discipline required to to execute that stuff is completely insane. And he nails it, you know. And and, uh, and it's so he he had to like grow up as a performer in in public in full view of of everybody at these shows and he's just like it's so admirable what he's done. And yeah. uh and the music is just so much fun to play. Those shows are incredibly fun, really exhilarating, and the audience just loses their minds, you know. It's like it's it's audiences routinely lose their minds at, at metal shows, you know, obviously the, the 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 pits break out and stuff. But there's just a a quality of energy at those metal shows that's Extremely cathartic, and it's so much fun being on stage while it's happening. And just a, yeah. <laughs> just a feeling of community, you know, it's like everybody's getting off on it so hard and, and sharing that experience. It's really fun. I hope yeah. we get to do more, you know.
1: Yeah, well, he's got the new Galacticon record he's working on, he's, he's
2: working on Galacticon 2 right now. So, yeah, we had a good time playing Galacticon 1 once. Isn't that amazing? How many guitar players do we have? It's... I think there was four, right? It was you, me, Musalam, and Brendan. So yeah, we were doing
1: you know, four part four part guitar harmonies. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it sounds. So sometimes we have like four baritones, or at least two or three baritones, and yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the 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 yeah. for Death Clock, the stuff is tuned down to to C. Yeah, Brendan. Yeah, he has a lot of cool. Concepts too, like the whole baked, where he's doing comedy mixed with live band. And yeah. I've seen you do that a couple times when you're available.
2: Yeah, I've, I've. It's I haven't done one in such a long time, and it's a drag. But it's like I've I've been I've been traveling a lot, so I've been missing out on doing these these baked shows. But yeah, it's Brendan and Steve Agee, <laughs> both brilliant stand <laughs> they're and, hilarious. and both guitar players. And and when I'm there, it's me and Pete Griffin and Joe Travers. So and so. then. It's the thing where every, every, uh, every stand-up wants to be a musician, and every musician wants to do comedy. There's yeah. usually three or four additional stand-ups that come in, and they'll do a routine. They'll do, you know, ten minutes. Of comedy, and then we'll do
1: a song with them. It's nuts! Like when I used to be at the Baked Potato, this you know famous fusion hole. Yeah, and it's a very cozy club. But there and there, you guys are doing this, and then like Zach Galifianakis comes out and does a set, and he's like walking around the potato with a microphone, like talking to people. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Only in L.A. kind of. Uh, yeah, kind I mean thing. this is where everybody
2: is. So there's there's a possibility that you know Bobcat Goldthwait <laughs> will just show up, you know, or
1: Emo Phillips. Yeah. It's totally fun. Now speaking of New projects. Can you talk about, like, you just came from a rehearsal today, or, pre- I mean, you're doing so much this week. But what's this new, like, super group you're trying to form over here, you and oh, your buddies? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I haven't <laughs> discussed this publicly at all, so I guess this is, this is a scoop. But, yeah, I won't say the name of the band, uh, because we might still, you know, have to discuss it. Um, but I've been doing a bunch of stuff with, with Chris Myers, who's the drummer from Humphreys McGee. And he's a fantastic drummer, and he's, he's all over Scambot, too. And he, uh, he's per- performed live with me several times, and I've sat in with Humphreys with, with McGee you know, a number of times. Uh, and those guys are fantastic, and he's a great drummer. And then Pete Griffin, who was the original bassist from Zappa Plays Zappa, and who is also all over Scambot, too. Uh, I've, I've got together with Chris Myers and Pete Griffin, and Ben Thomas, the singer from Zappa Plays Zappa, and Jonathan Simmelman, who's an incredibly talented keyboard player here in LA. And we've been getting together whenever our schedules allow, which tends to be like one or two days every three months. Uh, And we we set up at at Chris's place and we write songs together. And this is a completely new experience for me. And I didn't realize until I started doing it that it was the, but that everything that I've ever done in music, I'm either the the band leader in charge of everything and writing all the music, or I'm a sideman you know, and I'm playing the leader's music, and, and I have input into things and might have some arrangement ideas and stuff that get implemented, but I'm not co-writing the material at all. So right. it's always one extreme or the other. Until now, I realize you know this is like probably the way most bands work is they get together in a room and they knock ideas around and they come up with songs. I've never experienced that before and it's really fun (laughs) and uh, so we've we've been writing as of today we have like seven songs in progress and we're not concerned so much with doing an album at this point it's more about building a repertoire for live playing so we kind of want to just like emerge as a live act and and continue developing the material on stage. And Umphrey's is a, is a completely uh, phenomenal. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a, they're a major touring act within the jam band world. You know, it's like the same people that are yeah. going to see Widespread Panic and Fish, and uh, they're going to see yeah. Umphrey's, and they play for thousands and thousands of people every night, and they tour constantly. So that's we're you know sort of like a little bit in that jam band realm, but it's 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 you know it's a, we're we're all prog geeks so yeah. naturally there's there's prog elements but ben is a you know he's like a a gut bucket a real kind of rhythm and blues singer at, you know he's got a lot of sort of like extreme uh like deep bluesy stuff going on and he's really versatile you know he can bust out on a guitar and on a trumpet and on a trombone and on a jew's harp and on a bongo. I love that and, you know, dude. Yeah, he's humble too. He, yeah, Ben. Yeah, yeah. He's and and just very creative vocally, and it's not something you know. People who have seen him with Zappa plays Zappa haven't necessarily picked up on this side of him. You know, when when he's a, a part of of creating freely, all this stuff comes flying out mm-hmm. of him. He's a really interesting frontman, and and. A, and of course, we haven't performed yet, so the the frontman aspect of it hasn't. It's kind of I'm digging not being the the primary singer for a change, uh, focusing more on just playing. Can you preview one of the riffs from the band? No,
1: not even three notes. <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: there's one that goes. It's here. The, the, I'll, I'll count it in so you can hear yeah. where this riff sits in 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 the relation to the groove. Like one, two, three, four.
1: I already lost it. Count it again. One, two, three, four...
2: Hits the downbeat, really? Yeah, I it's, it it's a three, four, one. I, let's see if I can play it and count at the same time. One, two, three, four. 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 One, two, three, four.
1: One, two, three, four. Two. That's a pain in the ass. Oh, right? yeah, that's <laughs> <Inside out. laughs> I can't match that. But, you know, I did play with uh, King Sonia and this great guy from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And he that high-life stuff and yep. one of his tunes. Like, I learned it because I'm the guitar player. But the rest, the, you have the keyboard player. Like, they would never quite knew where it came because it never hits the one, ever. Or the down, it never hits the downbeat. It's like, you know. Maybe I'll turn off this thing. It's
0: like three, four... Oh,
2: wow. I love that stuff. That's, man. Yeah, that's. just, But it bends people's brains. I know. It's cool, but it moves their bodies too, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome.
1: Man, anything else we got to cover? Or
2: um, you know? This is fairly comprehensive. How long have we been talking? Three hours? Oh, <laughs> <Feels> it <like>, feel, <laughs> feels like six hours, but <laughs> we've only been
1: talking. <laughs> well, uh, man. Mike, I know how busy you are right now. I really appreciate you coming in on a crazy autumn night. In Come Los and knock on a door. <laughs> Sorry. I used to think, I used to hear that song when I was like nine years old, just starting to play guitar. I was like, man, I can't even play the threes coming here. So it's pretty pretty wild. <laughs> you know, it's like moving around. It's like, who's that? Larry Carlton or somebody oh, who played this Probably that shit? Probably.
2: No, yeah. man, was so, there was so much groovy theme music, you know? It's like.
1: I know, this stuff's so good Modulate, I don't yeah. you know. I never really got to see Barney Miller really, but I ever I always knew the bass line because Oh, that's cool. Everybody I mean I don't know if I know exactly but everyone would play it. Yeah. So that's one of those things. Well, cool. <laughs> yeah. Here. Just jam out for a little take it out on one little something, anything. All right.
0: How will we know when it's all gonna blow brother? Ooh. All it's round what we are, we are, brother.
2: Pooh, brother. It's better to go, taking flight, being born, with a peek of light above. a solo over this? That's like a
1: So yeah, I'm still perplexed by this little piece. I'm, I'm tripping over it. It's like, how does it work? I mean, I could almost make some arguments as to understanding how it works harmonically and melodically. But really, I'm more like, why did Mike Keneally compose this? It's such a strange little hypnotic thing. It's like you go over to some crazy sci-fi modern living room, and you're looking around in bewilderment, and there's this little robot in the corner. And you have no idea what it does but you can't take your eyes off it. It's like, who built that and why? That's how I feel about this little alien piece of of music that Mike wrote. Don't really know why he did it, but I'm sure glad he did. I love his explanation where he says, you know, I have to write it in order to hear it. He's pulling this stuff out of the ether. Thank God for composers. I mean, can you imagine a a life without composers? That would be a very dreary, drab, dishwatery existence fuck that so glad we have composers and i know that there's a lot of composers listening you guys are amazing anyone who composes well you're a true alchemist forget that bs about turning lead into gold we are taking pure air vibrations nothing literally pretty much nothing just (laughs) vibrations and turning that into gold if you consider great music to be gold which i do so props to you composers All of us who do that, that's some true alchemy. And massive props to Mike Keneally for sitting down for so long and being so generous with his time. And I really enjoyed that journey, I'm really inspired. And of course, thanks to Guitar Player Magazine, guitarplayer.com, gonna be a big year for Guitar Player coming up in 2017, it's the 50th anniversary since it's been in publication. Can you imagine, that's pretty impressive. Things started out in 67. Thank you, Zoom, for the H6 Recorder. And thanks to all of you for listening and for sharing and for writing reviews on iTunes, all the stuff that helps. It's been really organic for the most part, and uh, it's been growing, so I really appreciate that. And I do like your messages and and emails. I get to most of them and try to reply to all of them, but I, I don't always get to everything, but I give it my best shot. And there's a Facebook page, of course. And you can see me on Twitter, Jude underscore Gold. Thanks to Joe Satriani for the the quote that I always use from the first episode. Keep it alive, y'all, till you're 95.